welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to The Life of Jesus. This is the beginning of Series 13, Series 13, Episode 1. And we are on late Thursday evening in the last week of Jesus's life. The Last Supper has just taken place and this episode is about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This uh, uh, story is uh, recounted to us in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, John just makes a passing reference to it. We're going to take the story as given in Matthew chapter 26 and the main passage we're going to look at is verses 36 to 46 which we'll read in just a moment. If you've been following series 11 and series 12, you'll know that we've been going slowly through the very dramatic events of the last week of Jesus's life. And every day uh, during that week, something very dramatic happened. On the Sunday, the first day of the week, Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph with huge crowds with him. And on Monday, he entered the temple compound and he went to the market trading area and he turned the tables over of the market traders that had been put there by the priests and by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. That was a very confrontational gesture. Then on Tuesday, he went back into the temple compound again and there was much time spent debating and arguing and cross-questioning between Jesus and the religious leaders. And during that evening, he spoke to his disciples privately about uh, how judgment was going to come on Israel. And he also explained to them about his future return to the earth, which we call the second coming. These are very dramatic days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, and on Wednesday, Jesus was uh, having a meal in the nearby village of Bethany, just a few kilometers out of the city where Jesus appeared to be staying every night. And during this meal, uh, at which Mary, one of the disciples uh, of Jesus based in Bethany, one of his friends, uh, anointed him with oil. During that famous incident, Jesus's disciple Judas Iscariot left the party in Bethany and went back into the city of Jerusalem on the Wednesday and uh, betrayed Jesus to the authorities by offering to work with them to organise his arrest. They offered him money and he said he'd come back to them when he could give them a time and a place that they could come and arrest Jesus out of the public eye, away from the crowds. We have to bear in mind at this time that the city is full of thousands of pilgrims coming because it's one of the main religious feasts taking place, the Feast of Passover. And the authorities who we know, uh, and as we've stated before on many occasions during uh, the previous episodes, the authorities were totally hostile to Jesus. The religious authorities had decided they needed to get rid of him because he was a false messiah misleading the people and undermining the Jewish religion as they understood it. So there was a head-on confrontation between Jesus and his claims 
and the position taken by the religious leadership represented primarily by their ruling council, 70 men who met under the chairmanship of the high priest and who had the right to organize and legislate over the conduct of the Jewish religion. So that conflict was coming to a crisis, coming to a head, and on the Wednesday, a decisive moment happened when Judas Iscariot decided that he was going to work with the authorities and he betrayed Jesus at that point. No one else knew what he'd done amongst Jesus's followers. And we are now in this episode, very late in the night on Thursday evening. But during the Thursday evening, as we saw in the second half of series 12, Jesus had been spending time with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, a room that was prepared specially in a friend's house uh, for he and his 12 disciples to share the Passover meal, the traditional Jewish Passover meal, which took place on that evening and was being celebrated all over the city and indeed all over the country, but particularly in the city. And Jesus was the head of this family, so to speak, of friends, and they were gathered together. And we've looked at some, in some detail at all the things that happened, the meal, Jesus's sacrificial act of washing his disciples' feet, the way Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion or Eucharist, through that Last Supper. Uh, and we've looked at uh, Jesus' teaching about servant leadership. Uh, we've looked at the fact that Judas... Uh, who was with them, he'd come back to be with them on that Thursday, halfway through the meal, actually quite suddenly left the table and disappeared without explanation in a very dark moment. And of course, he headed from there straight to the religious authorities because he knew now where Jesus was going to spend the evening. He was here in the upper room. He was heading back towards the Mount of Olives and was probably going to go to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he passed this information on to the authorities. Then in the Last Supper, we also see from John's material how Jesus spent a lot of time teaching, reassuring his disciples, explaining the things that were going to happen, talking to them particularly about how the Holy Spirit was going to come and live in them and replace Jesus's presence by the divine presence of the Holy Spirit living within them and empowering them. And that all ended, according to John's account, which runs from John 14, 15 and 16 for three chapters. That ends in John 17, uh, when uh, uh, there is a prayer recorded of Jesus. And that's the uh, prayer that we studied in the last episode of series 12. So just before leaving the Last Supper and the upper room, Jesus prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for all future believers. Then, according to Matthew 26, verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, we need to think a little bit about the geography here. Jerusalem is a city set on a hill, uh, surrounded by walls. And to the east, there is um, a valley, the Kidron Valley, 
and you go down out of the city into the valley and then up the other side to a small hill which is slightly higher than the city of Jerusalem and that hill is called the Mount of Olives and uh, gives a very wonderful viewpoint that you can look over the city of Jerusalem and tourists today uh, go to the Mount of Olives to take photographs of the old city of Jerusalem as we now know it. So Jesus left the city heading to the Mount of Olives. In order to do so, he needed to walk down into the valley, the Kidron Valley, and then eventually up the other side. We're going to follow the account and read the story in Matthew's uh, version. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. What a dramatic scene, full of profound emotion and deep suffering on the part of Jesus as he anticipates what is going to happen. And immediately after this moment, Judas Iscariot appears with uh, an armed group from the Jewish authorities. We'll look at that in the next episode. Jesus knew what was happening and he knew what was going to happen. Let's just retrace the steps for a moment and imagine the scene as the disciples leave the upper room, 
sing a hymn and walk through the city late at night. What sort of hymn would they be singing? Well, it was customary at the time of the Passover and in the Passover meal to sing extracts from a series of psalms that were used at this time. They were known as the Halal, Psalms 113 to 118. We've mentioned Psalm 118 already because it's considered to be a messianic psalm that speaks of the coming of the Messiah. Here are some of the verses that they might have sung if they were singing this particular psalm, which is very likely. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. These psalms were often sung with somebody leading and the rest of the group following and sharing the words between a leader and a chorus. And we can imagine Jesus as the leader singing word, the words of this psalm or one of the others in that group. And the disciples responding. And if they'd sung Psalm 118 on that occasion, they would have come across these words, which you may remember from our earlier studies. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a prophecy that Jesus identified as being fulfilled in himself and is referenced several times in the New Testament. Then they would have come across a few verses later, Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And this saying had been sung by the crowd on Palm Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem as a welcome statement for the Messiah, which was how it was understood by many Jews at the time. So you can imagine the disciples and Jesus singing as they left, maybe even singing on the street. Other people around who had uh, had their meals, were in a good mood, had drunk some wine, uh, were maybe singing uh, and praising as they were walking through the streets. But Jesus didn't go straight to the top of the Mount of Olives. He went to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means an olive press. And if you go to that area today, as I've had the privilege of doing, you can find a proposed location for the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, there are several. Nobody knows exactly where it was. But one thing you notice is the olive trees everywhere. And the Garden of Gethsemane was probably somewhere at the, near the bottom of this valley, just a quiet, secluded place, late at night. We might be at, at around 11 o'clock or midnight or one o'clock in the morning. It's this sort of time that we're talking about. The disciples have had a really good meal. They've drunk some wine. They're feeling tired. Their stomachs are full. And they head to this garden of Gethsemane the first thought they have is to rest it would be fairly warm the weather would probably be good hot and they'd want to just rest in the evening but Jesus wasn't going to be able to rest and he divides his 
11 remaining disciples into two groups. In verse 36, he says to eight of them, uh, sit here while I go over there and pray. But he takes three of them, verse 37, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. Eight of them are resting in one place. Three of them are asked to come with Jesus to another part of the garden some distance away where he's going to pray. And the three who are chosen are Peter, James and John, who are known as the sons of Zebedee. Peter, James and John, as we've mentioned on a number of occasions, were the inner circle of the 12 uh, disciples. Peter, the, the leader in effect of the group of disciples, James and John with him, two brothers uh, with him. And these three were sometimes picked out by Jesus to be with him uh, on special occasions. For example, when he was um, healing the daughter of Jairus, um, in Galilee, uh, much earlier in the story and much earlier in his ministry, uh, he went into the room where the child had uh, recently died and uh, he prevented people coming into the room, except uh, he brought amongst the disciples, he would only allow Peter, James and John to come with him and the family. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus uh, went up a high mountain after uh, uh, spending some time in the town of Caesarea Philippi, uh, he took just three disciples with him for a long walk up a very high mountain. And those three were Peter, James and John. They witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus and the appearance of Moses and Elijah. So these three were given special conversation with Jesus, special opportunity to know his inner thoughts, special opportunity to be with him at critical moments. The Mount of Transfiguration experience was a critical moment. They're the only three who saw Jesus transfigured and his whole being transformed by the glory of God temporarily. No one else saw that. And now, at his moment of great need, at a human level, he wanted Peter and James and John to stay awake, to pray with him and to share the experience of the suffering that he had in anticipation of his arrest, his humiliation, his trial, the beatings he was going to experience and the execution that he was going to suffer that would lead to his death. All this was going to happen within a few hours and Jesus knew it. And he wanted his friends to be with him. And of course, one of them, John, we see from John's gospel, and we notice this in series 12, is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved and sat next to him in the Last Supper. So John is close in friendship to Jesus and he's been called to be with him on this occasion, along with Peter and James. And Jesus, as he was with them, became really troubled. The emotions were at the surface. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His whole body was affected by his emotional state. There's something very terrible about anticipating serious suffering. And you're close to it. And you've got to face it. He was sorrowful 
and troubled. And he prays. And he prays three times, according to Matthew's account. The first time, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but you will. Jesus, in his humanity, is calling out to his father and asking him if there's any other way that God's purposes can be fulfilled without him having to go through the terrible suffering that he is anticipating will happen shortly. And he carries on praying. Three times he prays. Mark records that when he's calling out to God, he's using the uh, Aramaic term Abba, Father. Matthew says, my father. But Mark gives us that precise detail, Abba, Father. That intimate word that Jesus could use with his heavenly father. He described God as our father for the disciples, but my father in a very specific and unique sense in terms of his divine eternal relationship as son of the eternal father. Abba, father, can this cup be taken from me? But I want to do your will. Whatever I have to do, I will do your will. Luke gives us some other details that are not present in Matthew's account that just fill out a little bit of what happens at this particular time. Luke 22, verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in earnest, he prayed, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Divine help comes through the literal physical appearance of an angel. But his suffering is so great that the bodily sweat almost looks like blood. But the disciples, even the three, Peter, James and John, they fall asleep. They can't continue with this time of prayer that Jesus is having. They can't fully engage with it. And Jesus found them asleep and had to wake them up just before uh, Judas Iscariot and the group from the religious authorities came down the hill from Jerusalem armed and ready to arrest him. An obvious question arises out of this passage. What is this cup? Verse 39. May this cup be taken from me. This term, the cup or the cup of suffering, has two implications. It obviously represents a symbol or a metaphor of personal suffering that Jesus is going to endure and undergo. He has to drink this cup of suffering. But it has another meaning scripturally. All the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the cup is a reference to God's wrath or God's opposition to sin and anger over sin that will ultimately lead to judgment upon sin. For example, Psalm 75 verse 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And in Isaiah, chapter 51, verse 22, 
This is what our so your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. This is after the Israelites had uh, been experienced God's judgment for unfaithfulness and gone into exile. And even in the New Testament, we have a very uh, similar use of this terminology in Revelation Chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, the cup of God's wrath is spoken of uh, in an end-time judgment scenario. So the cup is the experience of suffering and the experience of absorbing the wrath of God against sin in Jesus' own body and life. He's paying the price for sin demanded by God's wrath and fulfilled by substitution and sacrifice and atonement. So his death will be a substitute and a sacrifice for the death of other people that would come about as a result of God's judgment on their sinfulness. He's going to be the substitute. He's going to take the cup of wrath. Now, God's anger or wrath is not just an emotion like we humans feel. It's a settled, permanent opposition to and judgment of and intolerance of sin. God ultimately cannot coexist with sin. It will bring his judgment unless there is a path of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And Jesus provides that path of reconciliation for us. One of the interesting observations that we can make at this time of Jesus' life is concerning the importance of prayer. The last thing he did in the Last Supper was to spend time praying to his Father, and John records the three dimensions of his prayer that I mentioned earlier on. And he comes to Gethsemane, and in a different emotional mood now, he's also praying. Jesus' humanity is crying out to his heavenly father and asking whether the suffering has to be undergone. Now, Jesus in his divine nature will always perfectly obey the will of his father. But in his humanity, that obedience is tested by every new circumstance and found to lead to obedience in every case. But only through the experience of being tested and this is the biggest test of all it says in hebrews 5 verses 7 and 8 during the days of jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission son though he was he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That's a wonderful description that has a particular application to what happened specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we can learn from Jesus about the power of prayer, even in the most severe testing and difficulty and suffering. I want to conclude this episode by reflecting for a moment a little bit on another of the important sayings from this passage. 
Matthew 26, verse 41, uh, says, Watch and pray that you may not that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this is an interesting saying which has provoked a lot of thought. It's become a very well-known saying. And Jesus is speaking into the particular circumstance, but I think we can learn something more generally. When he says watch, he means be alert. Be alert to the circumstances around you. You see, the disciples were failing to be alert to what was happening. They'd, ex they'd found out a lot of things about what was going to happen at the Last Supper. Jesus ex explained a lot of things. They knew that his death was very imminent. They now knew that Judas had gone to betray Jesus. And yet they weren't alert. They were sleeping. They weren't awake. They weren't aware. Watch and pray. Jesus is talking about active, specific prayer. Specific times of prayer make us stronger to resist temptation. The spirit might be willing, we might desire to serve God very wholeheartedly, but the flesh, the human nature that we have, is weak. There can be lack of focus, lack of discipline, lack of concern. And at this particular point, the disciples fell into that trap. They just collapsed in tiredness and just thought, oh, we need to just rest. They weren't alert to what was happening. And therefore they were vulnerable to fall into temptation. They were going to be taken off guard by the challenges that were about to take place. And there were some really big challenges because within a few minutes of this being said, suddenly a great crisis was going to come upon them because Judas Iscariot was going to arrive with an armed crowd from the religious authorities and their position was going to be very, very vulnerable. And we'll see what happens to them in our next episode. I hope you can join us. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.